right now on Matter of Fact. Stressed out, overworked, and underpaid. Henry Plenty Crops. Should working moms get a stimulus check during the pandemic? This CEO is leading a movement to pay moms $2,400 a month. In this country, we don't value what we get for free. Then, it's the Super Bowl story you've probably never heard of. All of a sudden, the guard opens the door recording the Super Bowl? I mean, get the heck out of here. The remarkable connection between the Iranian hostage crisis and the big game. Plus, there's a surge in applications to med schools, driven by a new generation of students motivated to treat racial disparities in healthcare. There is a legacy of black women being at the epicenter of discovery. And taking social distancing to the extreme. This is such a dream. How this woman ended up alone on an island to watch movies. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Welcome to Matter of Fact. How much is a mother's work worth? Before you answer, consider mothers of small children have lost employment at three times the rate of fathers in this pandemic. That's according to the Pew Research Center. And for those who still have a job, many have taken on a disproportionate amount of work inside the home. 50 prominent women, including Charlize Theron, Eva Longoria, and Gabrielle Union, took out a full-page ad in the New York Times to ask President Biden to pay moms $2,400 a month. They call it a Marshall Plan for Moms. Reshma Saujani is the CEO of Girls Who Code. She's leading the effort behind this Marshall Plan for Moms. Reshma, always nice to see you. Thank you for talking with me. Um, before we get into some of the details, I want you to tell me about the, the group that has put this proposal, if you will, together. Give me a little bit of the backstory. Hmm. So I think we're a group of exhausted mothers, like every single <laughs> other mother in America, in the world right now. You know, it's a group of activists, a group of um, educators, a group of CEOs, a group of entrepreneurs, a group of, you know, women who run nonprofits like me who represent hundreds of thousands of women who are saying to the Biden administration, to our country's leaders, please do something and do something now because America's mothers cannot continue to keep working for free. So walk me through what the proposal is that you're really packaging up and, and proposing to the Biden administration. Yeah, so as you know, we're in a national crisis right now. Uh, women's labor market participation is where it was in 1989. So it took us nine months to lose almost 30 years of progress. That's frightening. Black and Latina women are losing twice as many jobs as white women. So we need a 360 plan that's gonna get America's mothers back to work. And that in plan includes basic income for mothers. It includes affordable daycare and paid leave. It includes making sure that schools are open safely five days a week. And it means retraining American women uh, for the jobs of the future and making sure that companies actually offer flexibility so we can deal with the insanity of the pandemic and not have to lose our jobs. Many people have focused on the element that calls for paying for moms who are home. So walk me through that piece of it. Sure, you know, we had proposed a payment of $2,400 a month and that came from the stimulus payment. Um, but look, I think the point is we have to do something. We have to finally start compensating mothers for their unseen work. So basic income for mothers is something that we should start talking about. It's happening in other countries. How come you don't do basic income for 
parents. You make it specifically about moms. Why is that? You know, for every one father who has lost his job, three mothers have lost their jobs. Moms are facing the brunt of this pandemic when it comes to their economic job losses, not dads. Are you considering all moms for this? I mean, certainly there are some moms who have left the workforce but are not in a position where they would need $2,400 a month. Look, I think it should be means tested. I think it should be for moms who, who really need the resources. The administration has done that with childcare tax benefits, right? They've set the, the bar at you know a certain income level. And I think we should do the same thing for basic income for mothers. There are people who've said, hey, wouldn't a real Marshall plan be, forget the payment part, and actually just focus on helping women be more secure in the workplace? Let's do it all. Let's get pay equity, let's get paid leave, let's get affordable daycare, let's put pressure you know, on private sector companies to stop having mothers face a motherhood penalty. Let's do it all. How do you think about paying for it? You know, 70% of the breadwinners in low-income families are women, and they're women of color. And so as we think about an economic recovery plan and we're thinking about who to prioritize and we're thinking about bailing out the banks and bailing out the airline industries and bailing out everybody, bail out moms. Because I promise you when you do, that's gonna be a return on your investment. Reshma Saujani, nice to talk to you, Reshma, thank you. Thank you, Soledad, for having me on. Coming up, a story of grit and the gridiron. Every football I caught, every pass, that really helped keep me alive. A former Marine shares his survival story of being held hostage in Iran for 444 days. But first, as the vaccine rollout expands, communities of color desperate for help are still getting left behind. Welcome back to Matter of Fact. Medical school applications are up 18%. That's according to the Association of American Medical Colleges. And schools note that black and Latino students are helping drive that increase. Many students say they are motivated to help their communities, which have been hardest hit during this pandemic. We hear from doctors who hope that their work will change the pattern of disparities in healthcare. My name is Dr. Chris Purnell. I am a public health physician and health equity champion. I like to tell people COVID-19 landed on me personally. I was the epicenter. My father died after approximately a two-week battle in the hospital, and it went even further. I, my sister is a long hauler, and it took her at least nine months to recover. So here's a picture of my dad, Timothy L. Purnell Sr. He was 78 years old when he lost his life on April 13th. My dad was a research scientist. We talked frequently about science. He would say, follow the data, follow the science. I needed a way to be a part of the solution. I'd seen my family devastated. I'd seen my community devastated. And participating in a COVID-19 vaccine trial was my way to do that. If black and brown communities don't participate in the COVID-19 vaccine trials, the inequity is just further perpetuated. So my dad would have been thrilled at what I'm doing. We frequently had conversations about the benefits of science, about the benefits of clinical research. And I say frequently, look, daddy, I've become the data. I think about Dr. Kismikia Corbett. 
the black woman scientists at the NIH whose team worked with Moderna on coming up with the mRNA vaccine. That is something that my community needs to hear. That is something that the American public more broadly needs to hear. There is a legacy of black women being at the epicenter of discovery. You know, not only have we been devastated by this pandemic, but we've been leading in this pandemic. And it's so important that the narrative includes black lives, that we can be a part of the solution. I spoke to Dr. James E.K. Hildreth, an infectious disease expert and the president and CEO of Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's also participated in a vaccine trial and is working to increase vaccinations in communities of color. Dr. Hildreth, it's always nice to talk to you and always great to have a chance to check in with you. Let's talk about what's not really working when it comes to equity in vaccinations. Um, ideally, how, how should vaccinations be working? For me, the ideal way to do this is to prioritize the vaccines based on vulnerability. And the most vulnerable populations are, of course, people in nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and their black and brown communities uh, around the country. So I'm all in agreement that our frontline healthcare providers should have been protected. But from my perspective, the next in line should be those that are most vulnerable to disease and death. Because at, at the end of the day, our goal should be to save as many lives as possible, and that's how we would do that. We know that black Americans make up more of the COVID-19 cases, um, uh, but, but are getting far less than that fair share when it comes to vaccinations. And that's by assessing the data in the 16 states that are actually tracking racial and ethnic data. I think the CDC has to find a way to insist that that data be provided because according to what I've seen from the CDC, about half of the data for vaccinations do not have demographics regarding race. So we don't actually know the extent of the disparity because we don't have the data. And without the data, we can't address the resources as they need to be. So we have to have that data. Why are the people who are most at risk and most vulnerable just don't seem to be at all at the front of the line? So that I think you're seeing a reflection of why there's health inequities in our country. They relate to access. So some people don't have transportation to get to the vaccination sites. So rather than having those individuals come to where the vaccinations are, we need to take the vaccinations to those communities. That would solve that problem. The other is a technology issue. Not everyone can navigate the internet to get those appointments. In fact, some people don't have access to the internet. So there's a problem of access, there's a problem of technology and sophistication in terms of being able to navigate the system. And some people who are taking advantage of their relationships with healthcare providers and healthcare professionals, and that's not fair, but there's not much a person living in certain communities can do about that. Is there any element in these disparities that is some over-indexing of people of color in not wanting the vaccine and not being interested in getting vaccinated? That's a really important question. And one thing that I'm trying to be careful of is that we don't let vaccine hesitancy become the basis for not prioritizing appropriately. In other words, it might be easy for some to say, well, the black people don't want the vaccine anyway, so we're going to direct it to others. We can't, we just can't let that happen. So I think that what we have to do is to think about this in terms of what's called the vulnerability index, where you take into account uh, income, 
you know, underlying diseases, uh, education levels, all those things that contribute to susceptibility to disease in the first place. If you make that the basis for vaccine distribution, then race will be accounted for because it just turns out that most people who are most vulnerable are people of color. But whenever race gets injected into any of these conversations, it never goes well. And so we have to avoid that. Dr. Hildreth, nice to talk to you as always. Thank you. Thank you, Soledad. To see the extended interview, go to matteroffact.tv and search vaccine rollout. Coming up, a tale of the tapes. I was holding on to them and I said to them, you promised you would allow the hostages to hear this. How a big play off the field brought a small token of home to American hostages in Iran. This is the weekend that football legends are made in what's destined to be a Super Bowl for the ages. But as history-making games go, we think you have to look back, way back to January 20th, 1980. The Pittsburgh Steelers versus the LA Rams. It was a game played out against the backdrop of an international crisis and a nearly forgotten story about big plays on and off the field. Here's our special correspondent, Joey Chen. The city of champions was on the verge of another title. By any measure, Los Angeles was the underdog that Super Bowl Sunday. The Steelers' Terry Bradshaw was voted MVP. But there was another key player on that day, and another history-making handoff, although it took place 7,500 miles and a world away. I will never forget that morning on November 4th when I'm seeing them come over the wall and the gate, there was no security whatsoever. Only 29 days earlier, Rocky Sigmund arrived at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran as a Marine guard. He became one of 52 Americans held hostage for 444 days, interrogated, threatened, and very often left completely alone. And you're thinking that who really cares about us because the world's going on without us. You had to go back to a, a good place, and a good place was growing up in the town of Washington, Missouri, uh, playing football. The former captain of the Missouri State champion Washington Blue Jays says that three things saved him in those dark days. Faith, family, and football. Every football I caught, every pass I, I dropped, every block, everything that I, I reminisced and I, I dreamt back to those days, and those were, they were happy days, they were great days that really helped keep me alive. Meanwhile, an unlikely lifeline appeared outside the compound. Then a cub reporter for an L.A. radio station, Alex Payne grabbed his chance at the world's biggest story. So of all the hostages, he was the only private citizen. And so then that localized the story for me. And so I ran into the news director and said, hey, I'd like to go cover that story. We got a local hostage. And of and course, he, said, what? he just said, are you crazy? But less than a month later, Payne was in Tehran. Do you even know what you're getting yourself into? Not, not really. At that age, and I was 26, you know, you, you don't feel like you're going to get in any trouble. The next day, I went to the embassy, and there was a huge crowd. It was very scary because I had my tape recorder, you know, slung over my shoulder and my microphone, and I'd wade through the crowd, but they're pushing and shoving, and uh, they're yelling, death to America. Slowly, Payne won over the guards and became the conduit for millions of letters from home. 
This is me holding up one of the cards, one of the envelopes the cards came in. Yes, America, they made a difference. They open a door and they bring in this pile of, of uh, cards. And we look at each other like, what the heck is this? And we start picking up these cards and we start reading like we're praying for you. The hostages didn't even know about the yellow ribbons of hope that Americans had tied everywhere. We had no idea that the world was reunited to try to, uh, you know, bring the hostages home. Then Payne made another special delivery, the Super Bowl. The kickoff came around 3 a.m. Tehran time. Jimmying a link to a tape recorder, Payne recorded the whole game, and then... At 6 in the morning, I bundled up and went to the embassy and gave the cassettes to the militants. But as I was handing them the cassettes, I was holding on to them and I said to them, you promise you would allow the hostages to hear this. They said, yes, yes. And some of them there, there was several of them said, we want to hear it too. All of a sudden the guard opens the door and again, we jump and he brings in a tape recorder and he says, this is a recording of the Super Bowl. And again, we all look at each other like, recording the Super Bowl? I mean, get the heck out of here. In that unreal moment, Alex Payne scored a victory for the ages. He had a mission and he succeeded in that mission, God love him. Today, the St. Louis Soldiers Museum features Sickman's story, but he thinks of other heroes, including those who died trying to rescue the hostages and Americans still imprisoned all around the world. For him, the Super Bowl will never again be just a game, but a moment when America came together to embrace other Americans. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen. Coming up next, can President Biden make good on a promise to pay Puerto Rico? Plus, alone on an island with 60 movies to watch, how this woman became an audience of one at a film festival. to a weekly feature we like to call We're Paying Attention, even if you were too busy. So more help is finally on the way to Puerto Rico more than three years after Hurricane Maria slammed into that island. The Biden administration is planning to release $1.3 billion in aid, and they're also going to lift restrictions on another $4.9 billion that was withheld under the Trump administration. We visited Puerto Rico nearly two years ago and saw many communities that were still struggling. Under President Trump, Congress had approved $67 billion for reconstruction, but only $18 billion was ever released. Next, it's a scene made for the movies, a private screening for one on an isolated island. Would you do it? Finally, a Swedish nurse became an audience of one at a Scandinavian film festival. Lisa Enroth beat out 12,000 applicants for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be the 2021 Gothenburg Film Festival's castaway. She just wrapped up a week of watching film after film after film 
on a remote island off of Sweden's west coast. Now, Enroth kept a video diary of each day on the island, which is now on the film festival's website. Organizers say they chose Enroth as a sort of a thank you for her hard work on the front lines battling the COVID-19 pandemic. She said this type of social distancing was a much needed break. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien, and we'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and Pluto.